students, welcome back to lecture 15 on Homer's Iliad 2019, Homer's Iliad books 8 and 9, part 1. We're going to focus on a very small part of book 8, but a very interesting and funny part. Also, I know I didn't tell you to uh, mark a specific page, but I am going to read to you a certain quote that Zeus is going to speak to um, all the other gods, a very threatening quote. We've seen him threaten Hera once with his unconquerable hands, we're now going to see him threaten everybody. And actually watch them shiver in their boots, because apparently he is very scary. Alright, well let's get started with that. Book 8 begins with Zeus banning every god from the battlefield. Notice that we have seen several gods on the battlefield. We've seen Hephaestus save some Trojans, even though he'll technically be on the Achaean side. We've seen Aphrodite save multiple important Trojans, Paris, as well as Aeneas. We've seen Athena go down to the battlefield in order to encourage either Trojans or Achaeans. Remember that she encouraged Odysseus after the disastrous speech by Agamemnon. She also uh, fooled the foolish Pandaros into starting the war back up again during a neutral time, during a time of uh, uh, an armistice, as it is called, when you put your arms down. In any case, we saw a one-on-one -on -one combat set up between Apollo and Athena in Book 7, between Ice Greater and Hector, just like with Paris versus Menelaus, the result was inconclusive. It did not have an end, because night fell, and that would have been, if somebody had won during night, the reason might not have been because of skill, therefore, great Cleos would not have been given, and so there's no point for somebody to die for no reason, even in war. In any case, Zeus now says, I am the steward of fate. I have agreed with Hera to make it so that Troy will fall. All of you other gods are simply getting in the way. You do not understand my plan. You do not have the intelligence necessary to make this happen. I need you out of my way. And in fact, I want to read to you uh, the threat that he makes. I don't remember even where I put my book. There it is right here, right at the beginning of book eight. If you find it before me, great glory to you. I do not have page numbers on, or excuse me, I do not have book demarcations here. All right, yes, good. So, book 8, line 5. Hear me, all you gods, and all you goddesses. Hear me while I speak forth what the heart within my breast urges. Now let no female divinity, nor male god either, presume to cut across the way of my word, but consent to it, all of you, so that I can make an end in speech of these matters. And anyone I perceive against the gods will, attempting to go amongst the Trojans and help them, or among the Danaeans, he shall go whipped against his dignity back to Olympus. Sounds a lot like Odysseus talking to Thersites. Or I shall take him and dash him down to the murk of Tartarus, far below, where the uttermost depth of the pit lies under earth. That is, Tartarus is the underworld for the, um, the ancient Greeks, and in fact, it will later be the deepest and darkest part of the underworld. It is where the gods from before the Olympian time, the Titans who were defeated by the Olympians, remain forever. That is their idea, essentially, of hell. Where the uttermost depth of the pit lies under earth, where there are gates of iron and a brazen doorstone, as far beneath the house of Hades, as from earth the sky lies, then he will see how far I am strongest, of all the immortals. Listen closely here. Come, you gods, make this endeavor that you all may learn this. Let down out of the sky a cord of gold. That's a rope of gold. Lay hold of it, all you who are gods and all who are goddesses. 
Yet not even so can you drag Zeus from the sky to the ground. What sort of game does this sound like where there's a rope held by one person and then on the other end it is held by several other individuals and they try and pull each other, yes? Tug of war. And yet this does not seem like a very fair tug of war. You say, yes, Mr. Schmidt, it doesn't seem very fair because what? how many gods are on Zeus's side? One. How many are on the other side? All the others. And yes, I agree, it's totally unfair because Zeus is so much stronger than all of them that he will easily defeat every single other god and pull up the earth too. Look, it says it. Let down out of the sky a cord of gold, lay hold of it, all you who are gods and all who are goddesses. Yet not even so can you drag down Zeus from the sky to the ground. Not Zeus, the high lord of counsel, though you try until you grow weary. Yet... Whenever I might strongly be minded to pull you, I could drag you up earth and all and sea and all with you. Then fetch the golden rope around the horn of Olympus and make it fast so that all once more should dangle in mid-air. So much stronger am I than the gods and stronger than mortals. So he spoke and all of them stayed stricken to silence, stunned at his words. For indeed, he had spoken to them very strongly. So, Zeus makes a threat, and it is no idle threat, and he has harmed other gods before, as we know with Hephaestus, and also potentially with Hera as well. You will hear a story about him having tied anvils to her legs and made her uh, essentially gaze into the abyss for some amount of time after she messed with his son Heracles at some point. In any case, when Zeus makes... Uh, a threat to you, it is well worth taking it seriously, especially because we know old Stenelis's father, Capanius, spoke against Zeus and then got fulminated. Anybody recall what that verb fulminated means? Yes? To be struck by lightning and lit on fire. That's right. In any case, Zeus bans all the immortals. After the Trojans win a battle easily, Agamemnon starts to freak out. We need to get Achilles back, is his idea. So, uh, I don't need you to write this. This is just a summary of what happens in Book 8 to let you know what you miss very quickly. After the ban on the battlefield, battle breaks out in the Trojan favor. Paris then wounds Nestor's horse, and for some time, we are nervous that Nestor is going to be captured or killed. That said, Diomedes drives Nestor back to the ships in his chariot. But that means Diomedes is not on the battlefield to help the Achaeans. He's been a major help in the most recent battle. So, they're going to suffer for this. Tucris, who's the half-brother of Aias the Greater, the illegitimate brother by a concubine, and therefore not, uh, he is not going to receive inheritance from his father, uh, is injured by a rock while he fights right next to Aias the Greater. It's actually uh, Hector who throws it at him and breaks his collarbone. It's supposed to be very, 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 very painful. I don't know if any of you have ever broken a collarbone before, but it's very easy for the collarbone to break. And uh, then it's weaker for the rest of your life, by the way. Uh, it's very painful. In any case... Hera and Athena then try to take a chariot down to the battlefield to help. And Zeus straight up says, If you go down to the battlefield, I will fulminate you. I will throw a lightning bolt at you. I do not care whether you are my wife or child. That is my will as king of the gods. And so they uh, get scared and do not end up going down. But they almost make a big mistake. Zeus, then send, uh, Zeus tells them through his intermediary, Iris, the rainbow goddess, goddess of messengers, and then the battle ends for the day with the Trojan win. Alright, so, what are we going to do? It's now night. Agamemnon has faced a terrible loss. Things are not looking good. It is obvious that the reason why things are not going well are because of his poor leadership. 
He is the reason that Achilleus is no longer fighting with the Achaeans. Since Achilleus has left the Achaeans, the Achaeans have seen nothing but disaster and defeat. The reason that Achilleus is gone is because Agamemnon took the concubine from Achilleus. Agamemnon, therefore, is the reason that the Achaeans are losing this war. If they lose this war, his name will forever be held in infamy. He will forever be an even bigger punk than Thersites, which is uh, the opposite of why he came to the Trojan War. He came to win great Cleos in glory for all time. Well, if he loses to the Trojans, who have one-tenth of his fighting force and no Achilleus, a super soldier, there will not be much good to say about him. And so... In the middle of the night, he can't sleep, he can't sleep. He needs to figure something out. Because if he just falls asleep and wakes up the next day, what will be different from the day before? Absolutely nothing. Except for time will have passed. So he calls an assembly. And in this assembly, he has the best captains there, of course. Diomedes, Nestor, Odysseus, Ias, the, the Iontes, both Iases. And he makes a suggestion. He says, I just don't, I think, ah, without Achilleus, I really think there's only one solution. We should go home. It's the second time he suggested going home. Or call back in book two, even though he was trying to use, we thought, the rhetorical device of reverse psychology. It shows that it was in his mind that he was thinking of going home. And in any case, here now, he legitimately suggests this course of action. It is a cowardly course of action. He seems to have lost his nerve, lost his will. He... He's also just out of ideas. And so Agamemnon needs a lot of help from his thinkers. He needs a suggestion. And so the suggestion uh, will come in a moment, right after Diomedes speaks against Agamemnon. He says, Agamemnon, even if I have to stay and fight alone, all the Achaeans sail off. Stenilus and I, we will fight against the Trojans and we will defeat him. He shows exactly what the Achaean troops did not show in book two. He shows that he has an iron resolve to win no matter what. He'll sacrifice himself if he needs to. And that's exactly the sort of thing that Agamemnon needed to see. He needed to see one of his men, one of his top men, one of his lieutenants, uh, 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 show that he was willing to see this endeavor through because things have gotten difficult at the end. Things have been easy for the Achaeans. The entire ten years, they've won battle after battle after battle. 23 cities they've sacked. And now that they're finally losing... Their medal is really being tested for the first time. It's like a championship team that experiences their first loss after 60 straight wins. What happens after that loss? Do you return to form? Do you get back on the saddle? Or do you give up? Do you give in? Is your self-image destroyed? That is very much what the Achaeans are going through now. Who are they? What are they capable of? Can they finish what they've started here? Well, Nestor says, This night will break our army or preserve it. It is a very... Very important night. In fact, he goes to uh, he goes around to uh, check the sentries. Seven hundred guards are set at their new wall with their new uh, pipe. Excuse me, spike pit. Can't speak today. And so these seven hundred sentries will be very much aware. That will be a very important fact in the next book when we see spies sent out into the night. There will be Trojan spies sent out. One named Olon. There will be two Achaean spies sent out. Odysseus and Diomedes. All right. So this is Nestor's suggestion. Let's supplicate Achilleus. Let's ask him to come back. But if we're going to ask Achilleus to come back after taking his Garros, his specific prize, Briseis, and hurting his teammate, his honor, well, we're going to have to uh, restitute his honor. We're going to have to give him some restitution. 
And so, you'll notice here that uh, there's a very famous old Zen story. Or, excuse me, it's not, it's not Zen, it's just Zen, it's just typical Buddhist, which is this. There was the Buddha walking down the street one day, uh, on the way between two towns, on a highway. And he was run into by a famous murderer. And the murderer said, I'm going to kill you, but I'll grant you one last request. Very kind murderer. And so the Buddha said, hmm, go over to that tree and cut off a branch for me. And the murderer said, I love cutting things off. Of course I'll go do that. Very easy final request. He goes and cuts off the branch for the Buddha. And then the Buddha receives it and he says, ah, but here's my request. Now go reattach the branch. And supposedly the man was converted or enlightened in that very moment. And the idea seems to be behind there. It is easy to destroy something. It's very difficult to create something. That idea applies here because the only thing taken from Achilles was one concubine, Briseis. Let's see what all he has offered to come back, which he still will not even accept. He has offered Briseis. And Agamemnon says something very important. He says he has not lain with Briseis, which is natural to man and woman. That is very, very important to Achilles. He says he will offer 10 talents of gold. A talent of gold is 50 to 70 pounds of gold. That is 500 to 700 pounds of gold. That is a wagon full of gold that he is offering. 20 cauldrons. Cauldrons are what you cook food in. They're very important if you're a fighter because you use your cauldron every day. You want a good cauldron. Uh, seven tripods. That's what you put your cauldron on in order to have a fire lit under it so you can cook your food. 12 horses. Well, we know horses are like cars at this point. Very nice horses here in this case. Then seven women of Lesbos. That's one of the cities. Uh, it's technically an island that's been sacked by Achilles. I mean, seven more concubines after this one. Uh, are you starting to get the idea? Is Agamemnon showing that he does not want Achilles or that he wants him no matter what it takes? No matter what it takes. And that's exactly what you have to offer to somebody that you've offended like this. He is deeply humbling himself. He even offers... 20 Trojan women after Troy is sacked. And then he offers one of his daughters in marriage, Laodike or Laodike, Iphianasa or Chrysothemis. And then he says that he will treat Achilles as if he were his son. Now, something interesting about that. Oh, yes, and of course, also seven citadels. That means, essentially, seven, like, palaces in, uh, in cities. There is an element of subjugation here. There is an element of inequality here. Because if I'm giving you the gifts, and I'm rich enough to give you gifts, who is probably richer? I am. And therefore, in the eyes of many people, who is greater? Potentially I am. Because I have access to more resources. And also, if Agamemnon is saying he will treat Achilles like his son, then who is the father? Agamemnon. And so, in a father-son relationship, who is the boss, and who is in no way the boss? Who is the boss? Let's start with that one. The big, scary father. Well, in this case, would it be Achilles who's the father, or would it be Agamemnon? It would be Agamemnon. And that's the whole problem. As many gifts as he gives back to Achilles, can he give back to Achilles the perception that he is greater than Agamemnon? You can't receive that from someone else. I can't just be about to have a karate match with you and then bow out to you and say that you're actually better. If I let you win, then have you really won? Are you really better? It's, uh, I think, a similar sort of comparison. In any case, this is everything that will be offered to Achilles. That's like being given everything that you dream of. 
three men will be sent to talk to Achilles. They are all specifically chosen for a direct connection they have to him, a personal connection. They are Odysseus, Phoenix, who we haven't met before, and Aias the Greater. Let me see if I say it here. Good. Why is Odysseus chosen to go? Well, he is Achilles' friend, and they both do very much despise Thersites for various reasons. But the reason why Odysseus goes is the reason you would expect. Because he's smart and he's persuasive. He knows how to talk. He knows how to present things in the right way. He knows how to tell stories. He knows how to get people on the same page. He knows how to convince you to see that his advantage and your advantage are one. And so you'll work together. If anybody could convince Achilles with just beautiful words, it's Odysseus. Second person, Phoenix. Phoenix is an invention, we think, of Homer. Now, in mythology, Achilles has a very peculiar teacher. He's a centaur. That means half man, half a uh, uh, um, horse named Chiron. Not true for Homer. Homer has the teacher of Achilles be Phoenix. In fact, Phoenix will say that he taught Achilles everything related to arms, battle, as well as to speech. So he's taught him everything that he knows. And he actually has a very checkered past himself. Aias the Greater. Aias the Greater is like a carbon copy of Achilles, though not quite as smart. Very handsome, very strong, very tall, very powerful. The first cousin also of Achilles. They see eye to eye on things. They're very similar individuals. Alright, and these men are accompanied by two heralds, Odios and Euripides, as well. You can see all that light blue up there, meaning that which uh, camp are we focusing on, Achaean or Trojan? Achaean. Alright, so, this embassy is set. These three men are ready. They have the gifts of Agamemnon at their back. They are led by heralds. They approach Achilles. Achilles is here described as the Iacides. Iacides is an appellation related to his grandfather. His father's name is Peleus. His grandfather's name is Iacides. Interesting story about Iacos is that he is the king of the Myrmidons, or was the king of the Myrmidons, during a plague, a terrible plague that destroyed his entire people. He then prayed to Zeus, and he had his people made out of ants, which is supposedly the reason why the Myrmidons are so well-organized and strong, because ants are well-organized. And strong, and so very interesting. You would think that uh, com comparing a people to ants would be a negative comparison because of the size of ants. But imagine ants blown up to your size, and then, well, they're very powerful and scary. I think ants are some, they can carry something like six times more than their body weight, or something insane like that. Like I can move maybe two times my body weight off the ground, uh, and that's pretty strong for a human. But ants, you know. In any case, when we come to Achilles' camp, what do we expect to find? What do we expect Achilles to be doing? What about his elite fighting force, the Myrmidons? They're not fighting. What are they doing? Well, we find out. They're literally goofing off. They're making, they're just playing around. Uh, the, the Myrmidons outside on the beach are throwing discus and wrestling with each other. They're just, it's like they have PE going on. And uh, Achilles is sitting and strumming a harp, uh, a handheld harp called a lyre and singing of the deeds of old heroes, which is interesting because you can see that he really wants to be there in the fight because what is he dreaming about even when he isn't fighting? Fighting and doing glorious things. It's all he wants to do. It's like somebody who plays baseball at a tournament all day and then goes home and plays a baseball video game and then looks up 
like uh, trading info about baseball playing. It's like everything that's on his mind is related to battle. In any case, he is sitting right next to his best friend Patroclus. Notice that name Patroclus. Patroclus is going to be a bigger figure to us than Achilles in books 11 and 16, and he is going to be a big part of the second half of the book. What I want you to know about him is Patroclus is to Achilles sort of what Menelaus is to Agamemnon. Even though it is true that Achilles is the greatest warrior, he's got sort of an attitude problem, I think you would all say. He has an arrogance problem. He's like many beautiful, strong, gifted individuals. He thinks he's invincible, does not understand how vulnerable he is. His friend Patroclus, very different. Patroclus is older than Achilles, a little bit smarter, supposedly. In fact, his father, Menetius, said, always counsel Achilles well. He doesn't need you to fight. He's very gifted. But he needs you to guide him, to help him out. And so Patroclus is a little bit softer-hearted than Achilles as well. He cares about people. And in fact, you'll hear a story um, after something very tragic happens, that actually when Briseis was first taken from her home with her entire family killed, uh, which is a very sad thing you can imagine, uh, Patroclus would sit next to her and say, Hey, hey, don't, don't cry, don't cry. Achilles, Achilles of all men is going to marry you after all of this. You're not just going to be some slave. It's okay. That'd be very comforting. That'd be a very kind thing to hear after everybody you know who has ever existed has been enslaved or killed. Which you might want to sit and think for about 20 seconds during the course of your day about how that would feel if all of a sudden Escondido were invaded by some uh, perilous force and your home were burnt down with your dog, your cat, and you know your family in it, and then you were taken as a slave. It's like, man, would my life look a lot different tomorrow than it did today? The answer is absolutely, absolutely. Um, in any case, what you need to know about Patroclus is people like Patroclus. Patroclus is a good person. He is, and when I say he's soft-hearted, that's not to denigrate him. It's to mean that he's open-hearted. He's compassionate. He feels the suffering of others. In fact, you'll even get to see him cry at some point. And so, right before we get into this speech, Aias gives a very suggestive nod to Phoenix. He goes like this. That nod almost clearly means, you take the lead. You take point. You talk to Achilles. You talk because you're his former teacher and mentor and essentially his uncle. So he really loves you and trusts you. That said, Odysseus sees that, uh, that nod and decides to speak himself. And the question I might have for you is, why do you think that Odysseus sees that the plan is for Phoenix to speak first, but then speaks first himself? I think the answer is obvious. It's because Odysseus thinks he'll do a better job. He thinks he will say the things necessary in order to get Achilles back. And so this is what he is charged to do, to give a laundry list or a grocery list of what Agamemnon will offer to Achilles. Perhaps it will be that simple. Perhaps it will be the case that if Agamemnon offers these gifts to Achilles, he will take them back and he will return to the fight and everything will be hunky-dory like that. But perhaps you all know when you're offended or angry about things, are you always so rational? Are you always so quick to forgive? No, sometimes you do things that are not in your best interest. And that is the problem with anger. In any case, Odysseus gives his speech. He adds several important elements to his speech. He doesn't just list off the things that he knows Agamemnon is offering Achilles. The first thing he says is this. The Trojans, for the first time ever, now camp near the Achaeans, outside of their gates. Think of the arrogance of this. 
They no longer fear us. They no longer fear you at all. And we've had to build a wall and a ditch. It is the case that if we fight them tomorrow, they may very well break through our wall and our ditch and set fire to our ships. And rather than defeating Troy and going home gloriously, we will all burn in a towering inferno and die ingloriously. Oof. Well, scary thing to say. He even says, Zeus seems to favor Hector, so fight against Zeus. Achilles, of course, knowing that Zeus is serving his will at this time. And then he does offer Agamemnon's gifts, every single one of them. And then after that, he says, well, if these gifts don't persuade you, two more reasons you should come back. One is pity for us. We're your friends. You've known us for years. This is the tenth year of a war. You fought alongside us. We trust each other. We, we have the same interests. If I conquer Troy and you conquer Troy, people sing about both of us forever. Why would you not want this? And why would you want the opposite, where your friends actually die be when you could have saved them? I think that's a very good argument to say to somebody, especially when they're angry. It's like, look at things clearly. Is that what you really want? And then the, the third reason is, he's like, how are you ever going to win your Cleos back if you don't fight? If you get a loss during the course of a season, then the only way to <clears throat> start working towards a higher winning percentage is to start winning again. Well, let me pause this. And we're back. So, how are you going to win Cleos if you're just sitting in your tent playing music all the time? That would be sort of like you with your iPod listening to music in your room rather than if you want to make the track team, going out and running a few laps every single day. It just doesn't seem to work that way, unless Achilleus, like potentially some young people, thinks everything is just going to be given to him because, well, frankly, a lot has been given to Achilleus. He's a prince, the son of a god, his goddess mom goes to get Zeus to do what he wants. He's pretty, what's that word we have for when people think they deserve everything even though they've really earned nothing? Yes, entitled. He is the archetypal entitled individual. And so, he hears this speech, and bang, this is famous. For as I detest the doorways of death, I detest that man who hides one thing in the depths of his heart and speaks forth another, he says. That's a description of a lie. To believe one thing, and yet to say another. Or to, to be hypocritical about something. Now, what's unclear here is whether he's insulting Odysseus or Agamemnon. He could be insulting Odysseus because Odysseus is uh, saying things that Achilleus wants to hear. Maybe he does not believe them. He is gifted enough, a speaker, to, to uh, say things he doesn't believe, which is a hard thing to do uh, when your heart's not in it. But he could also be referring to Agamemnon, who is not actually sorry about what he has done to Achilleus, but also knows that he needs Achilleus like a swordsman needs a sword. He needs him as a tool. And so, Achilleus uh, responds very, very negatively to Odysseus' very, very, very generous offer and very, very good speech. It seems like Achilleus is extremely mad, very unreasonable at this particular moment, uh, which, uh, which is probably going to be a problem for the remainder of this.